ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The most successful companies don't improve an industry. They invent one. Ride the Moonshot ETF from Direction. These are 50 U.S. companies with potential for significant and disruptive impact in biotech, nanotech, space exploration, and more. The Moonshot Innovators ETF from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show lined up this week. Joining me will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Now, obviously, this Russia-Ukraine war, unfortunately, has taken center stage. It's a terrible situation, and it's one that I think everyone hopes de-escalates and gets resolved quickly. But obviously, this does have some financial market impact. And if you joined me last week, you may recall how I noted even before the situation deteriorated, we had already been in an environment where just about every major asset class was negative over the past six months, basically everything except gold and commodities. So things were already trending in the wrong direction. And now we have this tragedy to contend with. Tom and I are going to discuss this. And as usual, Tom has some very interesting data around what advisors and investors are researching right now at ETF Trends and ETF Database. So we're going to look through those. And then I do want to pivot and briefly discuss two pretty big ETF stories uh, from last week. The first is Capital Group, one of the largest asset managers out there. They finally entered the ETF space. Uh, they launched six ETFs last Thursday. And then the other story was Grayscale initiating this public campaign to get investors to submit public comments to the SEC in support of converting their Grayscale Bitcoin trust to an ETF? <laughs> I got to tell you, I got a huge kick out of this. I'm still chuckling a little. So we'll uh, talk about that as well. I'll then be joined by Dave Mazza, head of product at Direction, top 20 ETF issuer. And while many investors probably think of leverage and inverse ETFs when it comes to Direction, They've actually been quietly expanding their ETF lineup elsewhere. That now includes a growing suite of thematic ETFs. So, for example, in December, they launched the Direction mRNA ETF, ticker MSGR. 
And Dave and I are going to uh, cover that and, and several other ETFs. And what I think is interesting here right now is if you look at these ETFs, they focus on disruptive technologies. And of course, many of the stocks falling into that broad category, they've been extremely challenged recently, right? Uh, these are a lot of the growthier names that have been hit pretty hard. So Dave and I will certainly discuss that as well. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Jay Hatfield, founder and CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors, who they offer a lineup of what I would describe as income-generating ETFs. That includes the recently launched InfraCap Equity Income Fund, ticker ICAP, I-C-A-P. They also offer preferred stock and MLP ETFs. And this will be perfect because Jay and I will also discuss these ETFs through the lens of the current market environment. And I would say Jay takes a much more value-oriented approach. So we'll get a nice cross-section of market views this week, which is perfect given everything going on right now. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Good morning, Nate. How are you? I'm doing okay. Certainly a lot going on in the uh, the world right now. It's been an eventful start to 2022. And let's just jump right in here. I mean, clearly we are in a different market environment than we've been in over the past several years. I, I talked last week about how investors were already concerned about inflation hitting 40-year highs and how the Fed's going to contend with, with that, uh, right? Are they going to hike rates? And, and how does the economy respond? Now we've tossed in a major geopolitical situation with Russia and Ukraine. And I, I do want to talk investor behavior here, Tom, and, and perhaps offer some historical context as well with these types of events. But let's start with that ETF trends and ETF database data. You know, I always find this fascinating. What are you seeing from advisors and investors right now? What, what are they researching? Yeah, well, absolutely, Nate. Um... So certainly what's going on, on in Europe right now is top of mind for everyone, including our advisor community who's coming to ETF Trends and ETF Database to educate themselves and ultimately deliver uh, you know, coherent, cohesive message to their clients. And not surprisingly, uh, the interest in, in Russia and Russia-based ETFs, we have that as a theme across the platform, it's up 22x, 2100% over you know, week over week. Um, so just an absolute, you know, um, stampede of, of advisors looking for information in that regard. That's not surprising, of course. Uh, people are trying to figure out where they have exposure, either knowingly have exposure within a, in an ETF, or maybe they didn't necessarily know. It's more of a, a broader emerging market play that there is some Russian exposure. And I know that uh, what's going on from a market dynamic uh, standpoint is, is certainly very uh, top of mind. And, and so those people are coming to Trends and Database to, to unearth that and, under, and understand where their um, you know, ETFs that they own within client portfolios have exposure. The other thing that you know, is the theme that plays out through where, where they're looking in addition, Nate, and it, it speaks to your point about 
where advisors have been um, most interested in in the last six months or even a year. And and so the theme of um, inflation and, and how that plays into the whole entire commodities complex has been certainly an area that has been top of mind, uh, you know, headlined by, you know, crude oil interest up 400% week over week, uh, natural gas, levered oil, inverse, um, you know, inverse equity, gold, commodities, all of these things are up between 250 and 500% from an advisor interest standpoint. The, the blowout there in terms of advisor interest is wheat. Uh, you know, there's uh, Ukraine is a, is a large wheat grain producer and advisors are trying to understand uh, how that's going to play out. 1700% growth from a week over week perspective uh, in, in interest in, in ETFs that gain exposure to wheat. It's interesting. Just about every category you mentioned there. This morning, I was actually going through ETFs across uh, various categories and looking at year-to-date returns. And I think I looked at ETFs in every single one of the categories that you just mentioned. And a couple items I'll offer up here. First of all, with the uh, the Russia ETFs, so the, the two big ones, you have the Vanek Russia ETF, ticker RSX, and then the iShares Russia ETF, ticker ERUS, which, by the way, I saw that that's now closed to creations. Uh, so something for investors to be aware of. But both of those are now down nearly 60% year to date. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward with these ETFs, both from the, the creation standpoint, uh, but also whether or not you have investors that come in and and these would be investors certainly taking a flyer, uh, trying to play these things when they're down in, in that manner. But um, the emerging market ETFs, Tom, you know, this is interesting to me because I, I think I tweeted something out last week. If you look at the, the major broad-based EM ETFs, they all have roughly, say, 3 to 4% exposure to Russian stocks. And by the way, I mentioned uh, the iShares Russia ETF closing to creations. I also saw that they're going to, in these emerging market ETFs, um, they're removing Russian stocks from the creation basket. So they're still going to hold Russian stocks that, that were already in there, but they're removing these from the creation baskets. But the ETF that stood out to me over the past uh, few days is getting a lot of buzz is the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, ticker FRDM. And what's interesting about this, it uses a freedom-weighted approach. And because of that, it doesn't own any Russia, Russian stocks. It also doesn't own Chinese stocks and, and stocks of Saudi Arabia. I, I think that's interesting. I'm curious, has that popped up on the radar at all in terms of advisor interest or investor interest in searches at ETF Trends and ETF Database? Yeah, it, it has, Nate. So I, I looked at that data uh, late last night. And so it's up about 75% week over week. And to your point, you know, people, advisors and, and investors alike are trying to understand where there's exposure, but also if they're gaining exposure to, you know, Russian equities uh, within a basket of other exposures that they're they're quite comfortable with, what are the tools that they can employ within their portfolio to gain the exposures that they're looking for without uh, subjecting their client portfolio to, you know, this, this extreme volatility, and like you said, like a, a pretty massive drawdown. So ticker FRDM, the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, although it's it's still small and, and is only in about a $140 million fund, uh, it is garnering some interest uh, as it relates to ways to, to get some exposure that, that does not include um, Russia right now. And looking at the performance of that, by the way, uh, Freedom is basically flat year to date. This is through yesterday, year to date. 
Uh, if you look at the broad-based emerging market ETFs, they're down around 4%. What I do think is interesting about that is emerging market stocks overall have outperformed the S&P 500 this year. The S&P 500 is down about 8%. Uh, you look at something like the Qs, that's down 13%. So I think interesting as well. I, I want to talk investor behavior. I'll just throw out a couple of other performance figures. I mentioned I was uh, <laughs> I was searching around this morning. You mentioned commodities. So USO, the United States Oil Fund, that's up nearly 25% year to date. The uh, Invesco Commodity Basket uh, ETF PDBC, that's up 15%. You look at the Tucrium wheat ETF, that's up 20%. I mean, those are those are big returns out of commodities. Gold, by the way, is up about 4%. So, you know, still significant relative outperformance compared to something like the S&P 500, uh, but maybe not up as much as some people would have expected. And then, uh, you know, I always have to throw this out there, Bitcoin is down about uh, 8% year-to-date. So it hasn't been that uh, store of value, that digital gold, that I think some investors have mentioned. Um, but, but, Tom, on the note of investor behavior, look, these types of events, I think for, for everybody, they can obviously be highly emotional, right? We're talking about people's lives, literally, and how these events could shape the world moving forward. This is really heavy stuff. But from an investment perspective, um, I do think that you have to try and uh, compartmentalize this, right? It's tough, but I think successful investors have to do this. And you look last week, despite everything going on, the S&P 500, guess what? It actually finished positive for the week. It was positive. Now, what if you had briefly you know, sold out of stocks last Thursday when they had bottomed out, when the invasion first started? That would have been problematic. And I want to offer a couple of quick stats here. These are from Ryan Dietrich, who is chief market strategist at LPL Financial. So he has some great data, by the way, recommended follow on Twitter. But he looked at 37 major geopolitical and historical events since World War II. This includes events like the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the 1987 stock market crash, 9-11, all of that stuff. And he offered two simple data points. So number one, if the U.S. was not in a recession at the time of one of these events, the S&P 500 was actually up about 11% per, uh, a year on average after the event. Uh, number two, if there was a recession, the S&P 500 was down a little over 11% a year later. But, but I'll add to that second data point, even then, I, I mean, the average intra-year decline in the S&P 500 over the past 40-plus years is about 14%. So in my mind, 11% really shouldn't be that big of a concern <laughs> if you're investing in stocks. But uh, again, this is where investor behavior comes into play, right? It's easier said than done. I I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on, on this, this whole behavioral element around these types of geopolitical events or, or, or other major events that occur? You know, Nate, I think the, the thing that, that strikes me is that one of the core jobs of, of an advisor is to be a, a steward of their client's emotion over longer periods of time in, in service of their longer term objectives. And undoubtedly, you rattled off a number of, of different, um, very important things that went along went on in the world to people that, that elicit extremely emotional responses. And, and it's funny, sometimes I will ask you as a practitioner how you approach your portfolio as an advisor. And, and frankly, I'm probably more, more suited to represent um, someone who's a client of an advisor. And I'll speak um, you know, personally to say that 
I don't have to go very far within my network, people that I work with, family members who have strong ties to what's going on um, in the Ukraine and, and how that's affecting real world people that that we know and, and our family knows. And, and that's a very emotional thing to go through. But two things I think um, I would offer can be true. One is that you can certainly um, understand that this is an emotional thing and, and you can feel those motion, emotions and you should. The other thing that should be simultaneously true, and I think this is what we try to do at ETF Trends and ETF Database uh, it, through advisor education, is that you also should be a good steward of your portfolio and try to, wherever possible, compartmentalize and dampen the emotional effect so that it doesn't bleed into your decision making, especially at the time of you know maximum emotion that, that may um, result in, in some type of portfolio repositioning or a move within the portfolio that longer term will be harmful. And I think that you know advisors, ETF Trends, ETF Database, others within in the industry, to to keep people's eye on those two elements and be able to talk about them concurrently, I think that's really really critical as as we um, you know grapple with some things that we haven't seen in in decades. Um, but we we know that like you said, um, as we cast our eye towards our portfolios, um, there's certainly some precedent for for how these how these play out and they affect the portfolio. That's a great anecdote. And the the key word that you just said there to me is long term. And it's cliche, but I think as investors, you have to take a view of the longer term. It's it's difficult, but you can't react to these, these short term events. And I actually think in this day and age, that's become more difficult because you look at social media, for example, you're getting these headlines in, in real time. Uh, and in these these pictures, we don't even know if half of them are real, right? I mean, th- this is the the fog of war. It's not clear how accurate some of this stuff is, but these headlines are coming across. And again, back to that emotional uh, b- behavior, it's tough not to react and have some sort of uh, you know response to that. But you have to keep the longer term in mind. The other thing that I'll mention is that. There are a lot of prognostications that come out around these types of geopolitical events. You turn on any of the major financial (laughs) media networks, you'll see that. And I I just want to offer, you have to remember, not even Russia or Ukraine know how any of this is going to play out. This is an extremely fluid situation. So anyone prognosticating investment outcomes based on this they have no idea what's going to happen. I, I'm sorry, because, again, I mean, the governments of Russia and Ukraine don't know what's going to happen next. How could somebody, uh, you know, pull out their crystal ball and tell you what's going to happen in the investment world based on that or based on this? So I, I just think that's important to keep in mind as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, this whole social media element and all these headlines flying around. Well, I think it, it plays into what, what we're getting at here, Nate, is is it's feeding that emotional element and the, the swings of emotion can be fed in a more real-time way um, and also with uh, a lack of clarity on, on what is true. And so I, I think it's just um, the variance is higher in, in situations you know that we find ourselves in nowadays in, in the year 2022 where people can scroll on Twitter or, or other news feeds and get those literally, you know, wow, this was four minutes ago. This was six minutes ago. Is this real? Um, I think that it, it creates an emotional uh, bandwidth that, that is testing us as, as humans. Um, and, and to your point, it really just takes that that onus on us as individuals, but also, you know, uh, advisors that we may employ within in our portfolio to continue to pull our eyes up and look on the horizon over those longer periods of time, because if we get sucked into those, you know, really short cadence of, of information, it, it can be it can result in detrimental decisions. 
at the point where um, it can have a damaging effect on portfolios. Yeah, you just have to try to keep an even keel with this stuff. Again, I know easier said than done, but I, I just think it's paramount for, for investors. Um, Tom, just a few minutes left. I do want to touch on uh, two pretty big ETF stories from last week. And the, the first one, as I mentioned at the top, Capital Group finally entering the ETF space. Of course, Capital Group is behind American funds. I believe they're the uh, largest active mutual fund shop out there. But they launched six active ETFs last Thursday. I'm just curious, what do you think about their uh, th- th- their prospects here? I mean, they are a tad bit late to the ETF party, but we're also talking about a, a, a huge uh, name in, in the uh, active management space. They absolutely are, Nate, and, and they're bringing with them a team commensurate of um, you know their heritage and history and, and also uh, the evolution of choice. And I think that that's the key thing that a lot of the, the shops um, who have that pedigree or historical uh, mutual fund bias, SMA biased, um, it, it really is predicated on hearing from their clients. And, and we're talking about a $2.5 trillion asset manager. They're hearing from their clients that Clients want the ability to buy different exposures, uh, slightly different exposures within different wrappers. And so a couple things that I'll offer is that, uh, you know, the, the period between 2010 and, and, you know, even 2001, the S&P 500 was extremely hard to beat. Uh, you know, it, it had exceptional performance, one of the best decades um, on record. Um, but as we've seen, even since COVID, it, the volatility and choppiness in the market has increased. And, and one of the things that the ETF industry has reacted to, as it does, in 2021, there's 295 launches of funds, uh, which was almost you know 65% of all ETFs that debuted la- uh, in, in 2021. And, and although um, you know it's only about 4% of the total market share by assets, in 2021, the active space garnered 10% of the flow. So there's certainly a lot of interest here. And, and I'll also layer in that from an advisor behavior perspective, as, as we've got our finger on the pulse of ETF trends and ETF database, that has continued to increase. And I'm not talking about uh, week over week as we looked at those Russian um, and U- uh, Ukraine uh, statistics. I'm talking about over the last eight quarters, this has been a slow march of interest in it from the advisor community that we monitor up into the right. And so I think that there's some real uh, demand here. There's some some very serious players who've, who've already gotten in. If you can think about a T. Rowe Price and others, Capital Group is sh- certainly emblematic of, of, a, of a large player getting into the space. And then the last thing I'll offer, uh, Nate, is, is we recently polled our, our community as we do, and, and we said, first off, do you use active ETFs? 70% of the respondents, about 600 advisors, said yes. And then we had a, a break-off question of those 70%. Uh, we asked an into the future question. In my next year, I plan to increase my allocation to active ETFs. About 65% of the people who own them are looking at increasing. Uh, 32% continue current allocation. Only 1.8% thought about decreasing their allocation to active ETFs. And so I, I found that really interesting because it, it, it paints a picture for um, you know, uh, clients, uh, advisors and clients who are going to have more choice through the Capital Group suite. And I think they're just getting started from the six products they launched. But I actually think that um, it, it, back to the long-term nature of, of investing, I think if we look over how this plays out, not over the next year or two years, but over the next five to 10 years, I, 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 I think that the, a lot of this data would suggest that the likes of Capital Group um, are, are scratching an itch that advisors are looking to uh, to satiate, and and I think that their their prospects are certainly um, 
you know, somewhat optimistic. Well, I think it's interesting. If you look at the press release around the launch of these ETFs, the Capital Group CEO, Tim Armour, he said, uh, quote, the active ETF market is still in its early days. And then he said, I believe active ETFs will be transformative for the industry and that uh, we will be a leader in this market. And I, I think that speaks to some of the what you were saying earlier, just in terms of this uh, th- this growing demand around active ETFs, and though and that even though they represent a smaller percentage of the overall market, we are seeing outsized flows and outsized interest. So I think they're going to be really interesting to watch. A, a couple of things that, that I'll just mention here, and then I, I do want to move on and, and talk grayscale briefly. But if you look at the fees uh, on these ETFs, they're all between about 33 basis points and 54 basis points. So uh, what I think is noteworthy, they're significantly cheaper than a lot of actively managed mutual funds that are out there, but obviously more expensive than the the core you know, plain vanilla index ETFs that are out there. And that's really where the question to me comes up. The, the question to me is whether Capital Group can straddle the middle of the market. And what I mean by that is we know investors continue flocking to the cheapest, lowest cost, uh, most plain vanilla ETFs for the core of their portfolios. We can see that in the flows from issuers like Vanguard and iShares. And then if you look on the other end, we know investors are uh, dressing up these same portfolios by taking satellite positions in ETFs from issuers like ARK Invest and, uh, and GlobalX and Roundhill, right? Thematic ETF exposure or higher active share strategies. So to me, the question is, can Capital Group find an audience sort of in between there? Now, I, I think similar to somebody like DFA, and I noted, I noted this earlier, what I think they have going for them is very strong brand recognition, right? They have a very loyal advisor following. They've also been around a long time, like, like 90 years. So I think all of those things can work in their favor, but I, I do think they're going to have to stand out in some fashion. But uh, really look forward to tracking that story. Okay, Tom, we're, we're running a little short on time, two minutes left. I do want to ask you about Grayscale setting up this website to help investors submit public comments to the SEC in support of a spot Bitcoin uh, ETF. Actually, a conversion of GBTC, right? The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into an ETF. And I'll be honest, I thought this was uh, pretty ingenious, pretty innovative to try and build uh, some grassroots support here. And if you think about it, Grayscale's been pretty aggressive on this entire thing. I mean, they, they've been exploring going the legal route with the SEC, saying the SEC is committing an APA violation by approving futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, but not spot ETFs. They've been pretty vocal in the media. And now they're doing this. They're, they're flooding the SEC with comment letters. Uh, they don't really seem that concerned that the SEC might not like any of this. What did you think? Yeah, well, Nate, I, I don't have a dog in the fight here, uh, but but what I think is that it's sort of interesting that a leader and, and sort of an innovator in our space is, is doing something that, you know, others, you know, ha- have not tried. And, and so there's certainly inherent risk in doing that, because when you put things like this out in such a public, uh, accessible forum, uh, th- there's risk on, on the upside where, you know, there's just overwhelming support, but there's also risk on the downside of, you know, getting some some people whose comments that maybe aren't really what you're looking for. And so maybe just just to, to volley back and I'll start with a little bit of levity. And then there's a bit of a theme as I went through the comments. Uh, frankly, if you wanted to, um, you know, go down a little bit of an Internet rabbit hole, there's some very comical um, elements that have been added here. I'll give you one quick anecdote. Uh, a friend of mine, this is a comment on the uh, GBTC uh, Grayscale website, you know, to the SEC. 
A friend of mine in Florida lost his password that was used to access his Bitcoin. That Bitcoin today is worth over $100,000. It's gone forever, forever unless we can find a computer whiz who can unlock it for us. End of comment. <laughs> um, so there's some there's some some in there that are a little bit throwaway, but you know the other sort of theme that I noted, Nate, was. Uh, this this very uh, strong sentiment that um, the the American market, who are you know innovators and and have grown you know just world class, uh, large technology innovative companies, other nations are pulling ahead. I'll give you one example. I think that a spot. This is a comment again. I think that a spot Bitcoin ETF in the USA would be a proof that the Americans are following innovation. Don't let Americans get left behind. Other nations are approving spot ETFs. And in, in a, a whole bunch of different ways, there's a lot of comments around this idea that um, people are unclear why, uh, from their perspective, the American market and, and the American consumer, both advisors and investors, are not able to access this as, as others are in other markets. Well, I think, as you know, I am one of those people <laughs> with the same questions. Uh, one, one thing I will add here is if you go through those comments, which, by the way, if, if you're bored on a, uh, you know, on the weekend, grab a beer and read through some of these these comments. It's like a, like Comedy Central. Uh, however, I'll say that the comments are taking on much more of a serious note. If you go back and look at some of the public comments on uh, on prospective Bitcoin ETFs back in, say, 2018, 2019, when the SEC was uh, soliciting these, a lot of them, they're just, they weren't that serious. Whereas now you look at these comments, they're very well written. There's a lot of uh, evidence and, and logic and data backing them up. So I, I don't know if this is going to move the needle at all with the SEC. But uh, again, I think an interesting tact by Grayscale and something else uh, to watch. But Tom, we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, excellent stuff as always. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Have a great day. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Miami Beach is calling your name to the biggest ETF industry event of the year, Exchange. Exchange is engineered to deliver high value by providing a space to learn, interact, and network with the most influential thought leaders in the industry, built with financial advisors, not just for them. Go to exchangeetf.com to register and enter Prime for 50% off your registration. Again, that's exchangeetf.com and apply the discount code PRIME. See you in April. I'm now joined by Dave Mazza, head of product at Direction, who currently offers 81 ETFs, about $25 billion invested. That includes an expanding suite of thematic ETFs, in particular, disruptive technology ETFs, several of which we'll discuss today. Dave's now on the line with me from California. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back, Nate. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so look, we are going to discuss several thematic ETFs, but I think just given current events right now, I'd love to start bigger picture. Uh, obviously, we do now have this war in Ukraine. Uh, prior to that, there were already concerns over inflation and what the Fed will do. And you look over the past 6 to 12 months, it's been a pretty challenging market environment, especially when you start going through some of the higher growth names, which I, I want to talk about that a little bit later. But there are a lot of stocks down 30, 40, 50 percent plus. So before we get to the uh, thematic ETFs, what, what do you make of the, uh, the, the markets overall right now? 
Look, I think we, what we've woken up to, particularly this year, although it you know really began in November, is that the, the elevated level of uncertainty, which has become a cliche statement uh, over the last couple of years, if, if not a couple of months, uh, is here to stay. And what I mean by that is that, to your point, is now throwing into the mix we have geopolitical concerns, along with questions about how the, the Federal Reserve is going to be able to thread the needle between uh, the the great economic growth that we've seen, but coming on, coming with significantly high levels of inflation that are, are far from transitory. So uh, the, the Federal Reserve finds themselves in a unique position, and markets, you know, um, especially the growthier names, have, have been hit hard. And so many people were pointing to uh, this environment being uh, like the bubble in the late 1990s, but if you peel back the onion, to your point, we've seen some names 30, 40, 50 percent down from their all-time highs. It's actually been a bit of a rolling bear market uh, in certain segments. So uh, we have seen significant repricing, um, but the questions really about where interest rates will go remain quite high. On that note, obviously nobody has a crystal ball, but the Fed does seem to be in a pretty difficult spot. Uh, we, we had inflation come in at 7.5% year over year in January. Uh, that's been a concern for a while now. But you layer on these events in Ukraine and with, with the current financial markets uh, under pressure. I'm just curious, how do you see the Fed trying to thread this needle? Do you think they'll actually prioritize tackling inflation? Or are we still in an environment where you think they're going to err on being accommodative and, and not rocking the boat? Any, any thoughts? Well, certainly. I think what we, what we, we found ourselves in an environment where uh, many economists and, and, and sell-side banks were moving from you know, a pretty modest number of interest rate hikes to, to some saying seven, eight, nine. I've even seen reports that there's going to be 10 hikes in 2022 alone, let aside what may happen in 2023. But here's what we do know. Uh, we know that um, economic growth r- remains high, but it's slowing on a year-over-year basis, um, but it's still pretty robust. But inflation continues to run much, much hotter than expectations. So, and, and essentially with Chair Powell's comments, along with other Federal Reserve presidents and governors, they, 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 they have to move in March. I, I'd be very surprised if even with this um, crisis, uh, unless it really uh, continues to, 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 to turn south, that, that, that they wouldn't do so. But the idea of a 50 basis point hike and then subsequent 50 basis point hikes have probably come off the table. Um, but they really do need to, to find a way to continue the credibility that they're trying to bring. Um, and many people say that they've already lost it, although I think that's a bit of an extreme statement, uh, and, and try to remove some of the accommodation but do so slowly. So to me, they, they have a path forward, but the idea that we're going to see just stepwise increases in interest rates like we saw from 20, 2004 to 2007 uh, probably is, is, uh, needs to go out the door. Well, Dave, let's do this. Let's pause here on the on the market conversation and, and let's get into a few direction thematic ETFs. And then I do want to circle back to this discussion because, uh, again, obviously it's relevant given the ETFs we are going to look at do hold some of the highest growth names. And uh, again, those have been under pretty significant pressure recently. So, so let's do this. Let's start with the Direction Moonshot Innovators ETF. Great ticker symbol, by the way, Moon. I, I think that's an ETF classic. But this seeks to hold 50 of the most innovative U.S. listed companies. Take us from there. This is index-based. How is this constructed? Yeah, it is an index-based product. But essentially what, we're try- what we really tried to do is among essentially micro-cap and small-cap and mid-cap companies, try to, to systematize the way that um, an active manager may be looking to, to identify uh, innovation. And, and what we're doing here is 
we're building a basket, again, of 50 names, so it's relatively concentrated. And we're looking for two things. Our companies talking the talk and walking the walk when it comes to innovation. And what I mean by that is that we actually go out uh, with our index partner, S&P Kensho, and screen corporate filings for if companies in the biotech industry, for example, or financials or industrials are using more terms associated with innovation for their industry than their peers. So we're going to overweight and seek out those particular companies. But that's not enough. We also want to know, are they walking the walk? So are they spending more on research and development relative to their sales compared to their peers. So you have a company, companies with innovative culture, innovative vi- vision, and you pair that, are they spending on those missions? Uh, and, and that's what you end up here. So the names in this particular portfolio um, you know, range from the biotech space to, to industrials uh, and even traditional information technology. So it's a really exciting portfolio, it's, and you're not going to see many of these names uh, in in many in, in other ETFs, particularly index-based ones. Yeah, I was looking at some of the the categories here. I mean, uh, genetic engineering is covered, autonomous vehicles, cybersecurity, electric vehicles, distributed ledger, smart grids, smart buildings. I, I could go on. Well, one thing I'm curious about: you mentioned that the CTF is sort of systematizing how an active manager might look at innovation, and as you just des- described there, I, I just couldn't help but think of Ark Invest and some of their strategies. Now, obviously, those are traditionally active, uh, actively managed, but do you see Moon as sort of an index-based version of those strategies, or is that not really a fair comparison? Well, look, I think anyone with, with a thematic ETF, particularly focused on disruptive technologies or innovation, is going to be compared to ARC for good reason. Um, you know, uh, what they really kind of put... put I think on the map that, that thematic ETFs of this nature can play a role in, in investor portfolios. But this moon is, moon is different, um, primarily because it, it really tilts toward micro-cap and small-cap companies. So it really it can complement other existing thematic ETFs. Now, the flip side of that is that you're, in the short term, probably going to see a portfolio that could be more volatile, because really what we're, what we're seeking to find are companies that are going to be disrupting the way the world works over the next years, if not decades. Um, so this is purposely built for those names, certainly the macroeconomic environment, primarily because of the impact that uh, rising interest rates have had on growth stocks, has hurt performance um, relative to, to, to where it was essentially a year ago. Um, but this, if you're going to be out, what I tell investors, if we're going to be allocating the strategies of this particular nature, we probably need to be comfortable. And if we look at long-term periods with some significant drawdowns, because this is really should be a satellite part of a portfolio that could complement it over the very long run. All right, Dave, another interesting thematic ETF offered by Direction is one you actually launched shortly after the pandemic really took hold, a little less than two years ago. I actually remember you and I discussing this uh, at the time. That feels like a decade ago, by the way. Uh, yes. The, the uh, Direction Work From Home ETF, ticker WFH. Now, I, I actually have a specific question on this, which I'm guessing you get all the time. But b- before I get to that, just explain the, the basics around this ETF. Yes, the basics of work from home um, are we, we have a 40-stock portfolio, and there's 10 stocks from four sub-themes that are powering the ability to work from home, but really work from anywhere, the remote work, the hybrid work revolution. And these themes are cloud technology and cybersecurity. So those are your um, 
kind of proverbial air cover, if you will, combined with online project and document management and remote communication companies. So in this particular portfolio, you're, again, you're going to see some names that you're familiar with, of course, but also others that you may not be um, for good reason. Okay, so the question that I had that I'm guessing you get all the time is, uh, look, I think we all hope we're on the back end of the pandemic, right? And it does seem like things are slowly starting to get back to normal. Assuming that's the case, uh, I would expect that to involve more people going back to the office and and going uh, back to doing everyday uh, normal things. So what does that do to the overall investment thesis for a work-from-home ETF? Yeah, well, it's a great point because, you know, I think many people, when we first, I remember when we first launched this, there was, you know, folks um, on uh, on Twitter and other social media saying, well, this is a sign the pandemic has to be over. And unfortunately, uh, we know that that hasn't been the case, but there has been, you know, significant strides made with uh, both the, the medical technologies to help uh, to help reduce the, 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 the impact of the pandemic coupled with the fact that from an economic perspective, we've shown a lot of resiliency, especially as a consumer. Um, so this particular fund um, is, to me, has a lo- longer-term staying power because what the pandemic really did is accelerate the potential for greater adoption of the technologies that are required um, to, to power the workforce. So even though it's called the Work From Home ETF, it really is about remote work and hybrid work. So, you know, companies are, are likely not going to be spending as much on property, plant, and equipment, um, but they are going to be spending on cyber. They are going to be spending on cloud. Uh, and then the tools that they need for, for employees to collaborate. So I think, you know, in this particular fund um, has shown some, some pretty resilient performance because of that. Dave, you mentioned uh, medical technologies to help reduce the impact of the pandemic. Well, let's touch on one other ETF here, which obviously is pandemic-related as well, though I don't think there's any question this covers an area that is clearly important moving forward. The Direction mRNA ETF, ticker MSGR, this just launched in December. Uh, do you maybe first want to explain mRNA technology and then uh, walk through the types of companies this ETF holds? Yeah, I'm, I'm really personally excited about this particular ETF, and, and I think m- many, many folks in a, in a product role will, will, will say that about their funds. But the reason I am is because when you peel back the onion and understand mRNA technology, it's something that, that while it's become a household uh, topic of conversation because of the pandemic, researchers and scientists have been working on using mRNA for, for decades. And really what it's doing is it, it stands for messenger RNA, and it's kind of the building blocks that, uh, of, um, uh, of DNA. And what, it's, what you can do is, is essentially use it as a technology. And that's how the vaccines are working, is that they're teaching your body um, uh, how, how to fend off the spike protein in the coronavirus. And what's fascinating to me is that now that we've shown the potential and the speed and efficacy and the ability to adapt, the adapt in uh, mRNA-based vaccines uh, for COVID-19, is that now funding is coming for everything from ranging from HIV, AIDS, uh, to various cancers, other respiratory diseases, and even something like Lyme disease. So for years, we were really relying on old-school vaccine technologies where you're incubating them uh, in chicken eggs and things of that nature. This is really taking uh, medicine uh, to the 21st century, um, but in different ways than, than really kind of some of the focus on gene editing and things of that nature are. So this is a, a pretty exciting portfolio, really only probably two names that folks will be familiar with, BioNTech uh, and Moderna, and then a handful of other particularly small biotechs that are doing exciting things in the space. And pretty concentrated too, right? About 25 holdings? 
That's correct. And the reason for that is that uh, in this particular uh, context, it's, it's very difficult to find a wide range of companies that are involved in mRNA for good reason, because it's pretty new. And it's just beginning to um, uh, uh, kind of make its way into, in, into uh, the, the broad-based applications. And we did not, again, for example, Pfizer's not in this portfolio. We did not want it. We want companies to have meaningful revenue coming from mRNA, so we're comfortable with a smaller basket here. And I think for someone looking for a very defined theme, um, that's probably what you might want to look for in an ETF. Dave, just a few minutes left here. Let's circle back to the discussion around the broader market environment and, 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 and growth stocks and what the Fed may do. So these three ETFs we discussed, they do all traffic in some of the highest growth names out there. And the fact is, these have been some of the names that have borne the brunt of the recent downturn. So my question for you is, given that, how should investors think about these ETFs moving forward? And you can talk about that in the context of a broader portfolio, or you can talk about valuations, but clearly some investors are concerned about growth stocks that, that may have profits way out in the future. Just offer a, a, a quick framework here. I th- and, and I think that's right to be concerned, because we, we were in an environment where those stocks were doing exceptionally well uh, and for, for, for some time, and, and now that many of them have been repriced. The way investors really need to think about growth stocks is in two ways. One is your, your almost kind of traditional growth stocks, and these are probably many of which are the fangs. They're highly profitable. In fact, they're, they have, they're generally of high quality. And investors may reprice their valuations, but it clearly from this most recent earnings season, um, their, their strong earnings aren't going away. A lot of disruptive technologies, a lot of disruptive innovation names are unprofitable today, and to your point, their revenues are expected to come five, ten years into the future. And when you, have, when you change the discount rate from zero or negative in, in inflation-adjusted terms, the investors tend to reprice them. What I find fascinating, though, is that this repricement has happened in a particularly sharp way, and the growth profile and the potential for disruption hasn't necessarily changed. So um, for investors who may have had significant exposure, um, certainly the, the recent performance has been challenging, but the potential for how these names may continue to change the, the way the world works and the way we uh, engage with, with, uh, with one another in different ways, you know, continues to, um, continues to be there. So I, I think this is an environment where investors should kind of think about their portfolios, reassess, focus on, on what allocation they want to have toward um, particular themes that um, may have a long-term tail with them. Um, so to me, it's uh, still particularly exciting, but investors do need to recognize that these names may be, may be more volatile, of course, than traditional benchmarks. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you mentioned earlier, thematic ETFs like this tend to be satellite holdings. That's what they are. And so I think position sizing, that, that allocation percentage is very important. Obviously, taking a long-term approach, you want to make sure that the, the thematic ETFs you're allocating to, they're not faddish, that they do have a long-term investment thesis as we walk through. And the idea here is that you get some diversification with thematic ETFs outside of the core of your portfolio and, and hopefully some upside longer terms. So I, I think you described that well. But uh, Dave, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent insight this week. Congratulations on the launch of the Messenger RNA ETF. And uh, I certainly look forward to visiting again soon. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. That was Dave Mazza, head of product at Direction. Did 2020's market crash shed a new light on how you view your portfolio risk? 
CDC, the Victory Shares U.S. Equity Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, helps investors curb emotional decision-making by investing in large-cap dividend stocks with the ability to systematically shift to cash during times of market duress in a tax-efficient manner. Visit bcm.com slash CDC today to learn more. Carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus containing this and other important information, visit vcm.com slash prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. This ETF is distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Jay Hatfield, founder and CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors, who at the end of December, they launched the InfraCap Equity Income Fund, ticker ICAP, ICAP. They also offer three other ETFs, one covering MLPs and then the other two covering preferred stocks. So Jay is the portfolio manager for all four of these ETFs, some $1.2 billion in total assets. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Jay, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate, for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, let's jump right in and look at your new ETF, the InfraCap Equity Income Fund. This is actively managed, seeks to hold stocks with a strong track record of paying dividends. Uh, Take us from there. Talk about the investment process. Well, we're excited about launching this fund, particularly this year, because we think defensive dividend stocks are going to outperform. But we recommend investors always have a significant allocation to defensive dividend stocks. And the reason for that is really that when you're down, you're not out. So you almost want the stocks to go down because you can take the dividends and reinvest. Whereas if you're in momentum stocks or money-losing stocks, it's sort of the reverse the lower they go, the more you want to sell. So we think it's timely. We own um, uh, household names, uh, Exxon, AT&T, Verizon, Kraft Heinz, in a uh, highly diversified by sector. And then we do two things to enhance the yield. It's, it has a, a yield just over 7%. We have modest leverage, like a closed-end fund, 20 to 25%. Um, and those that's mostly the leverage or the extra capital is invested in preferreds, so it doesn't significantly raise the volatility of the fund. And then finally, we write um, short, very short-term covered calls to not to cover the dividend, importantly. So the dividend's fully covered. That's the SEC yield, approximately, that I mentioned, but to just add extra return. So by what we found with other funds, if you write very short-term options and manage your exposure to the market that you can add alpha by doing that. And to give listeners an idea here, as I look through the top holdings, we're talking about companies like Kraft Heinz, Verizon, Southern, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Altria, AT&T, those types of companies. I'm curious, what is the current yield on this ETF? Or or is there a target you strive for? It's just over 7%. Um, The the equities yield approximately 5 and then by 
uh, borrowing some money and investing in preferred stocks, which is another expertise of ours. We have that's where um, two of our other funds are, are in preferreds. That's where you get from five to seven. Jay, talk a little bit more about the income challenge right now. So obviously, investors have concerns over the potential for rising rates, which that could make fixed income less attractive moving forward. Uh, We'll see what happens with the Fed. But we also have to recognize that stocks, even higher quality, uh, defensive, dividend-paying stocks, those aren't risk-free, right? These are equities. Can you just talk about the balance here? Like, how should investors think about the risk-reward when pursuing income-oriented strategies? Well, what we think investors need to do is um, not necessarily, if you already have substantial allocation to investment-grade bonds, which includes munis, mortgages, and pure treasuries, we, wouldn't, we don't think this is a great time to bail out of those. We think the interest rates are capped, uh, the 10-year roughly around 2%, mm-hmm. notwithstanding, and that's even after the European situation gets resolved. And, there, and we're bullish about that, just in short, $52 trillion in global pension assets, a uh, tendency for the yield curve to, to flatten during Fed tightenings. And then finally, um, we think there's going to be slow growth in Europe and China. So if we do have capped rates, not a great time to bail out of your, your fixed income uh, investment grade. But we would add a slug of preferreds because they have some uh, very modest interest rate risk or zero sensitivity to the stock market, have a high yield allocation, but you're never going to get to your yield bogeys. We try to structure portfolios with um, area of 4% yields. They need these yield stocks. You need to be um, have some REITs, higher yielding REITs, have some utilities, have the types of companies that are in um, ICAP. You've mentioned preferred stocks a couple of times. Um, you do offer the Virtus InfraCap U.S. Preferred Stock ETF, ticker PFFA. And I'll tell you, Jay, I feel like this is an area that does sort of fly under the radar, or maybe some investors and advisors don't fully understand the space. Can you just talk a little bit more about preferred stocks as a a potential income solution here? Yes, it's actually really our favorite asset class for a couple of reasons. Um, Sometimes they become depressed, like they're a little bit depressed now. Um, Then they're a great buy because the, the preferreds that we focus on and urge your listeners to focus on, um, if you don't buy our ETFs, are uh, preferreds of same type of companies that are in ICAP, public companies, large market caps, uh, a lot of them very asset-intensive companies. They care about their credit ratings, so they care about their preferred ratings. So that's a good place to be where you're on the side of the management team, but yet they still have substantial yields. Uh, we focus on the 5 to 8% yields because we want to be protected against interest rates. Um, the lower the preferreds are perpetual, so the lower the um, yield, the more interest rate sensitive they are. So we think it's a great addition to every investor's um, portfolio to get relatively high income, uh, high, relatively low um, volatility in normal markets, not pandemics, but in normal markets. And and modest interest rate risk, if not you know close to zero in most markets. And for listeners, the other ETF that InfraCap uh, offers in the space is a REIT preferred ETF ticker symbol PFFR. Um, Jay, so look, the theme of the podcast this week uh, has sort of morphed into a macro view of the current markets, which I don't always do, but obviously there's just so much going on at the moment. So I, I thought I'd ask you. 
What's your take on everything right now? We can go wherever with this. You, you talked about the Fed a little bit earlier, but what's keeping you up at night? Where do you see opportunities? Give, give us a well, rundown. I think, I think where we have the most insight is on the Fed. Um, we're Fed watchers. That If investors want to track cycles, uh, focus on two things, the Fed and the housing market, because that's where the Fed um, acts on. That's the sector. It's the most cyclical sector. It's been involved in 11 of uh, the 11 uh, post-World War II recessions. And, but we believe the Fed is going to be relatively dovish. Five out of seven permanent members FOMC are going to be Biden appointees, more dovish than um, Republican appointees. And we don't think the Fed wants to have a recession. So we're bullish on that. We think March will be a positive inflection for the market. And as we mentioned, um, even after the Ukraine situation is resolved, hopefully it will be resolved, then um, we think the rates are not going to go, long rates are not going to go, you know, to the moon. It's going to be more two, maybe two and a quarter. So we're pretty bullish about that, the fundamentals. We tend to treat um, Ukraine and actions by Russians, authoritarian governments, as a little bit of random variable. So same thing, we would just, the only way to deal with that really, I mean, if you're an active trader, you can buy puts, but otherwise... We've been recommending, not because of Ukraine, but because of the Fed, these defensive dividend stocks. But they work well in these kinds of markets as well, as you can see from, you know, just the index or that we track, which is the uh, um, S&P high dividend index, that it's relatively, that index relatively flat to slightly up this year. So that's kind of the way, again, if you're not an active trader where you would buy puts, because it's very hard to make money buying puts we would deal with the Korean situation because I don't think anybody really knows exactly how that's going to sort out. And it's difficult to predict the actions of authoritarian governments. What about areas like oil and, and natural gas, really the energy complex? I, I was talking a little bit about this earlier on the podcast. The space has obviously uh, done very well year to date, but especially given the, the Russia-Ukraine situation, you know, that's been a, a, a tailwind here. You do offer an MLP, TF ticker AMZA. What are your thoughts on the energy space and sector? Well, we've been correctly bullish really since oil hit negative uh, $37 in the futures market, at least, that um, you know, demand would recover from the pandemic and, and that um, the somewhat misguided effort to uh, too rapidly phase out uh, hydrocarbons would eventually backfire, which is what we saw even before the Ukraine situation. So we, before Ukraine, we were forecasting oil to be in the 80 to 100 range this year, and, you know, may pop above that during this Ukraine crisis. What we do recommend when it comes to investing in energy is that's the riskiest sector, maybe except for profitless tech, tech stocks, but oil click clearly a very risky sector. So if, if investors want to get involved in that, we recommend, you know, conservative pipeline companies like, like the securities in AMZA or, you know, super major uh, you know, the Chevrons, Exxons of the world, because you're taking enough risk already in energy. And I would also just say, we're bullish about the fundamentals of energy, but if the Ukraine situation gets resolved, there's a peace agreement, and oil will come off. So you just have to be aware that you're, that you're kind of betting. If you make a huge allocation of energy right now, you're essentially betting that the Ukraine situation is going to probably get worse, not better. 
Jay, going back to your comments on the Fed, if, if I'm just reading between the lines, it sounds like maybe you're more in the camp that inflation uh, may, may be more transitory. And the, the question I have for you, I mean, you look at the, the print we got in January, 7.5% year-over-year inflation. We just talked about energy costs rising. I, is that accurate? I mean, do you view that as transitory longer term, or how, how do you see that playing out? Well, just to be clear, we were super bearish about inflation. In other words, thought inflation was you know really running more like 10% last year. But mm-hmm. because we follow, you know, again, remember our recommendation, follow the housing sector, <clears throat> you've seen mortgage rates rise from um, just under 3% to now, they've hit as high as 420. So the, in our opinion, the Fed needs to see what kind of impact that's going to have because the housing sector is going to move slowly. So we think, though, that we're not going to have 20% increases in housing prices, so that should attenuate rents as well. That was really a key driver. <clears throat> and then oil is going to be a problem in the first half, which in, obviously now uh, gas prices probably headed to 4 dollars on average nationally but we don't see oil going infinitely high like 120 130 so oil will cool off <clears throat> so second half we see cooling inflation and so we think that'll allow the fed to kind of halt at this neutral rate about 150 so we're constructive on inflation now but not that doesn't mean it's going to resolve itself in the next few months those are probably going to be negative prints and a little bit disturbing to the market before we get into the second half about a minute left here. I'm going to close with a, a fun question, at least fun in my mind. I have to ask you, uh, given your uh, obvious focus on real tangible assets, investments that produce income, things that have intrinsic value, do you have any strong views on crypto, uh, something like Bitcoin? You know, we, we do, which is that what our view, which is different than some uh, tech pundits, is that uh, the whole market and particularly um, for tech stocks and related like crypto, was massively overvalued last year, which is evidenced by companies like Zoom missing earnings. But it's down 80%. So you had too much liquidity driving all these speculative investments too high. We think in the second half when the Fed starts withdrawing liquidity, that crypto could crash. I mean, it's a highly volatile uh, asset class, but we're thinking it could go as low as 20000 So it's sort of the polar opposite of our recommendation to buy um, defensive dividend investments because crypto has no intrinsic value. So we would urge investors to be cautious about that. It may do okay in the middle part of the year. There's some It's up right now because maybe you know people are using it to transfer international assets, you know, possibly out of Russia. So, but it's a, people should know it's, it's very similar to going to Vegas and, and betting on, um, on black. <laughs> well, Jay, uh, great connecting this week. Certainly wish you all the success uh, with ICAP and, and your entire ETF lineup. Thank you for joining me. Great. Thanks, Nate. That was Jay Hatfield, founder and CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. At this time, I want to thank iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Franklin Templeton's David Mann. He's going to discuss mutual fund ETF conversions, uh, ESG ETFs, bond ETFs. We'll cover a number of uh, topics. And then Gabrielle Hammond, co-founder and CEO of Emless, will spotlight several of their ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.